Hey, I'm Nicole Ferraro, a contributing editor at Light Reading. Welcome to What's the Story, a short podcast where we take a step back from the most significant topics in telecom to tell you the latest news, how we got here, what it all means, and what to expect next. For our last episode of the year, I'm delighted to welcome back Light Reading's editor-in-chief, Phil Harvey, to discuss Huawei. Light Reading has written a lot about the U.S. and U.K. bans affecting Huawei this year. Phil is here today to talk about what the latest developments are and how he expects to see this all play out in 2021. Phil, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks, Nicole. Great to be back. Wonderful. Um, you were on the podcast back in July when we were just kids um, talking about the, <laughs> the Huawei bans. Yeah, we were so much younger um, talking about the Huawei bans in the US and the UK. So what have been the most significant updates since then? And what's the latest news on that front? Yeah. So, I mean, it's been 2020 has really been the year, I think, that... Um, the U.S. campaign against Huawei has not just taken real shape in a in the public eye, but it's it's started to drag in all kinds of other you know governments and companies and industries you know in you know that were kind of interconnected in this whole thing. I mean, the one thing about kind of to harken back to what I was saying at the end of the. Uh, uh, episode a hundred years ago was that, <laughs> you know, when, when you go to untangle, you know, decades of globalism of, you know, companies freely trading with one another for the benefit of everyone and competing on a global scale, when you go to kind of undo all of that, it gets really, really messy. And that's kind of what we're seeing here with Huawei. You know, Huawei rose up as this telecom equipment superpower, um, they really got their ass handed to them in the 4G technology arena. They just didn't have as good a technology at as cheap uh, or as reasonable prices and, you know, could, couldn't scale it as quickly as their rivals in that space. So they, they devoted um, uh, a lot of time to uh, and a lot of research and development to winning in 5G and um, and so they've produced some really competitive equipment um, at scale, and they've um, largely succeeded in in becoming a, a, a major competitor to Ericsson and Nokia worldwide, um, especially those two companies. And um, you know, and so now it's it's all a game of geopolitics. You know, who's allowed to compete in each country and who isn't. Um, so what other actions has the U.S. taken to uh, basically smack down Huawei worldwide? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm taking it's, it's, the phrasing from your article this week, actually. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so I'm the, a reader. I'm a fan. Oh, good. <laughs> it would be very <laughs> awkward on. if you weren't. Um, yeah. So the, the one uh, other, you know, besides talking to foreign governments and allies and kind of, you know, doing a a kind of worldwide lobbying campaign not to use Huawei equipment. Um, the the U.S. is also using its powers uh, as a um, as a as an economic world power to kind of keep 
Huawei from acquiring and using technology that it needs to produce its stuff. So um, earlier this year, uh, the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company uh, known as uh, TSMC, um, you know, it's a it's a company that Huawei heavily relies on for a specific kind of chip and its smartphones. And um, the U.S. added that. This was back in May. It added that company to the entity list at the uh, Department of Commerce. And essentially what that means is if, uh, if you're on the entity list, even if you're not based in the U.S., it means you can't sell U.S. technology or things derived from U.S. technology to any company that, uh, that we deem you know, inappropriate or, or on, or also on the entity list. So Huawei's on the entity list, obviously in the U S and, um, and by adding, uh, TSMC to that list, uh, what it effectively did was, you know, TSMC, uh, TSMC uses, um, this kind of, uh, capital equipment from the U S in semiconductor manufacturing. Um, so nearly, um, all of the, big semiconductor makers in the world use uh, equipment from three or four different U.S. companies. It's just a discipline that the United States has had, in a, you know, technologically speaking, you know, we've kind of had a lock on that for decades and, and still do to a large degree. Um, so the most uh, advanced semiconductor processes come from this type of capital equipment. And that's where, uh, you know, TSMC was buying their equipment. And so by this, by being placed on this entity list, the U.S. is basically saying, if you make stuff with our capital equipment, we'll cut you off from that capital equipment. You, you won't be able to buy or use or do any sort of upgrades on that if you continue to sell to the, you know, the, the companies that we don't like. Um, as of, uh, gosh, it was just... Uh, a week ago, <laughs> it seems like, again, having a hard time with time passing, um, you know, the, uh, uh, another, uh, major semiconductor company, uh, the Chinese company, uh, SMIC, uh, has also been added to the entity list. And, um, and as did the drone maker, uh, DJI, which is another company based in China, but, um, the Commerce Department came out with another list of 60 or more companies from China uh, in the past week. Um, it added uh, China's largest semiconductor company. And the reason that was particularly um, uh, hard news for Huawei is because that company, SMIC, makes the chips that goes into Huawei's low-end handsets. And they also were on the path to developing the technology that Huawei was buying from TSMC. So between uh, the two companies, uh, as I, I noted in my article, um, in 2019, Huawei accounted for 19% of sales at SMIC and 14% of sales at, at TSMC. So these two semiconductor companies, Huawei buys a lot of chips from them, and it, it was heavily reliant on both of those companies. Um, and both of those companies are heavily reliant on the United States for that semiconductor uh, manufacturing technology. So this is going to force Huawei and, and, and the Chinese government to source uh, capital equipment from other places. Um, and, uh, and it can do that, but it's, it's you know, uh, this, is a, this is a major 
potential disruption in their supply chain. It hasn't really shown up in, um, and it probably won't for a little while in terms of uh, revenue and sales, but it's it's definitely an operational hit that Huawei is going to have to uh, uh, withstand and work around over the next you know, several months to a year. And, and depending on which analyst you talk to, they have varying degrees of gloom and doom as to what this means for Huawei in the long run. Um, one of the easiest things to say about this and kind of the, the, the more, I guess, middle of the road predictions would be that, um, you know, that it will source other, you know, other companies and other capital equipment to make these chips, but it will do so at the expense of, a couple of cycles of handset sales and it will, you know, largely start falling, uh, you know, behind Sam further behind Samsung and different places and, and, and other providers. And so that's going to, uh, uh, you know, hit Huawei in the pocketbook and, you know, maybe, maybe that opens the company up to, uh, uh, you know, some kind of, negotiation with the new Biden administration or something like that. But, um, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like the horse is out of the barn here and, and, and this is, this is just going to be a long kind of tech inspired cold war. Um, okay. So with all of that said, and with all of this going on, how are the bands actually impacting Huawei's business and, and going forward and what companies stand to gain from this, um, from, from, these yeah, bands? That's a great question. So right off the top, the, the last part of the question. So obviously it's Ericsson, it's Nokia, it's, it's the companies that, um, uh, you know, were able to provide kind of an end to end, uh, uh, mobile telecom infrastructure, uh, kit for 5g. Um, there are plenty of other companies in that space that, you know, that, that, uh, benefit in bits and pieces. Um, the, but but largely it's it's those providers um, obviously companies that make uh, 5G radios like Samsung are also beneficiaries and companies that do a lot of the you know kind of pure networking equipment side because those knock on sales you know would kind of happen as you know you can't really upgrade the 5G network without kind of upgrading all the other pieces along the way. And so there's, there's, you know, Cisco and other types of, and other uh, hardware and software companies along the way um, indirectly benefit uh, from, you know, Huawei being out of the picture in certain countries. Um, The, I I guess one of the, um, so yeah, I guess the two primary beneficiaries would be Ericsson and Nokia, just because they have one less competitor to take on in, in a, in a bunch of markets. I did want to quickly note, you know, kind of what's happened in the bands. Um, you know, so as of this recording, Huawei still has 5g network business in, uh, Russia, the middle East, Africa, and parts of Asia. So that would include like the uh, Philippines and, and, uh, Thailand, um, Japan, Australia, Sweden, and a few other countries have banned Huawei outright. Um, the UK did, a very weird UK thing. Um, you know, it, it said its operators couldn't, couldn't buy, uh, Huawei equipment starting next year. And then whatever equipment they currently have installed at, you know, at the beginning of the year has to be removed by 2027. So 
essentially they gave some operators, I guess, a chance to ride out the equipment that they had recently bought or stockpile equipment, install it, run it for a few years. And then by the time the next generation of mobile technology comes around, they can swap it out kind of on their normal schedule. So it's it's as indirect a ban as I think I've ever seen on paper. Like I said, it's very British. Just, just all. <laughs> what purpose just, does that even serve? It, 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 well, this is, let me tell you what Germany did. Cause this is the, this is the, the, it, I think these are in the same boat. Um, so Germany, um, didn't ban Huawei either. It didn't ban ZTE, but what it did do was it, it heightened its security criteria so much so that it would be really, it, uh, much more difficult for those vendors to meet the requirements of local operators in that country in order to have the government approve, you know, their usage. So in both of those cases, what's happened is the countries didn't want to just fold over and bow to U.S. pressure and say, sure, you're right, we'll ban Huawei. Um, they wanted to kind of protect their reputation on the world stage. And so in the UK's case, that meant um, a, a, a labyrinth of weird rules. Um, in Germany's case, it meant, you know, doubling down on one or two specific things that it doesn't think Huawei can, <laughs> can, can come back with a good answer on. So it, again, it's kind of, I, I guess the definition would be a soft ban or, or a political ban because, um, it's it's clear what the message is, but you know when you read the rules as as written, it doesn't really you know come right out and ban anything. It's just you know um, that way. So so but the bottom line though is that the U.S. campaign against Huawei has largely worked in all the places you thought it might work, and it largely hasn't worked in all the places you thought it wouldn't work. Um, you know it really did come down to what the U.S. influence has been on the world stage. And that's, of course, been deteriorating, you know, throughout the Trump administration because Trump, mm -hmm. you know. Right. <laughs> All the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of uh, that guy, um, he's leaving <laughs> soon. Um, so let's talk about Yay. 2021 first. Yeah, well, we'll see. Right. Uh, let's talk about 2021. Um, the Congress finally approved a relief package and it has nearly $2.2 billion to rip and replace Huawei and ZTE equipment yeah. next year. Everything that struggling families during the pandemic have been hoping for. Um, so how do you expect... <laughs> How do you expect this to play out, and um, what predictions are you are you willing to make in terms of how how that all goes, and how all this oh, geopolitical stuff goes? I hate to make dire <laughs> predictions on the U.S. telecom <laughs> scene, but let's put it this way: so earlier this year, um, the rip and replace legislation um, had been part of another bill, and I think. I think this one was driven by the FCC. I, I, my memory's a little bit fading there, but the but the the upshot of it was, and Mike Dano and I joked about this nonstop, was the fact that they had just sort of earmarked a billion dollars to do the rip and replace, and then we had enough time, and Mike did especially, to go out and report from some of these. Uh, wireless operators in the hinterlands and ask them, you know, like, do you think this is going to be enough? And it really, the, the, uh, 
the the comments were quite enlightening. So it, it was clear that the government or the FCC or anybody who's looked at this hasn't given it any thought at all. Um, because is it? It's not only super expensive to rip and replace, but you put these companies in an operational no man's land. They're actually running their networks on the equipment right now. So in order to rip and replace, they're going to have to rip out the core of their network while it's running. So they're going to have to deny service at some point or go offline or do something. So, you know, in a, in a traditional upgrade scenario, what they would be doing, you know, when, when you're, when you're mobile, hopefully it doesn't do this, but when your mobile provider, you know, upgrades their equipment, if there's an outage of any kind, it's usually imperceptible. It, it usually degrades the service a little bit and they, they hot swap something over, you know, in the network and try to keep that traffic moving at all times. These rural carriers do not have the resources to do that, nor do they have the expertise because one of the things that, that Huawei largely capitalized on in the U.S. especially was the fact that it really is hard to get to these carriers and deliver them the expertise and the consulting and the uh, network planning necessary to use the equipment um, properly and to install it. Ericsson and Nokia both had opportunities there and so did Alcatel-Lucent and all the predecessor companies that, you know, that were around in the past. And they largely ignored rural America because it was just too damned expensive to send a guy you know, a couple of guys in trucks, you know, out into the middle of nowhere to work on this equipment for two days. So Huawei actually won hearts and minds by, you know, foregoing a little bit of profit margin, uh, making its equipment super affordable and actually doing the services part. And so now these companies are not just, it's not just a replacement of, of equipment. It's a replacement of knowledge and of know-how and of uh, operations expertise. And I, you know, these arbitrary numbers like, well, first it was 1 billion and now it's going to be 2 billion. I mean, I'm sure it'll come, I'm a billion dollars is a lot of money. I'm sure it'll come in handy and so on and so forth. But what they haven't really done is operationalized how this is going to happen and spot, you know, and pinpointed, um, you know, agencies and companies to look after the carriers that are obviously going to be, um, you know, put through a lot of pain to upgrade those networks all for the sake of geopolitical, uh, you know, toing and froing. Um, the last point I want to make there is that these carriers have also been in the middle of a pandemic as, as, as we all have. And so they're taking in less revenue, higher operating cost, you know, the worst business conditions, you know, in several decades. And you're asking them, Hey, by the way, um, <laughs> we really don't like the, uh, the the labels on this equipment. You should probably swap it out. So, um, my prediction is it's not going to go as smoothly as anyone thinks because it doesn't seem like anyone's really thought it through. Right. I, I mean, I might be looking at this in a narrow way, but it just seems absolutely bananas to me that these carriers have to spend this time and money on this next year when people are desperate, like, to actually get connected to the internet like it just seems pointless <laughs> like a, a great waste of time well and and operationally too you know one of the things that they're going to run into is they're going to have planned outages um 
I mean, that's so difficult to do when kids are going through going to school online and stuff like that. So they'll have to have planned outages when they have the planned outages. If they don't get everything lined up ahead of time, maybe that drags on and on and on. And, you know, in certain businesses, you know, the longer they stay offline, uh, the, the more money they lose and just no, nobody's in a position to be able to withstand that right now. Um, the, the other kind of, um, you know, I guess thing about this is, you know, our earlier, our earliest reporting about Huawei was just sort of challenging this idea that Huawei was, um, you know, some big security risk. And that's kind of been the, the, the thing that the government has spent, you know, they've spent years depicting Huawei as a security risk and trying to convince everyone that if you have its equipment, you're enabling Chinese government espionage. Um, you know, what we've kind of determined over time is that the security risk is as great with Huawei as it is in really any other um, foreign made equipment, you know, uh, from any other company, from any other nation. But, uh, but the, but it's, it, it does more or less come down to the geopolitics, you know, who do we want to trade with? What, what companies and what, uh, and, and from what nations are we comfortable empowering with, um, you know, access and, and, you know, uh, a, a seat at the table, uh, you know, of our, of our, uh, economy. And, uh, and I say our economy because, you know, a lot of what's going to happen on the 5G network is going to be integral to the advancement and the recovery of the U S economy, uh, once we lift out of the pandemic. For sure. Well, I, uh, I think we'll have a lot to follow up on here next year. So, um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me, Phil. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Nicole. Thank you so much, Phil Harvey, for joining me today. Thank you as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode and for all of your work on What's the Story this year. And thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review, share this episode with a colleague or friend, and subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more interviews and insights from the team. That's the story for now. We'll be back again soon.